O Lord, show us mercy and nourish us with your grace that we might bear the fruits of love. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Why? It's a question we hear asked dozens of times each day. Hundreds if you have small children at home. <laughs> we humans are meaning-making machines. We like to join data points, come up with theories, test hypotheses, and connect ideas, all in pursuit of having an overarching narrative that can explain our otherwise seemingly bewildering and unexplainable experiences. Whether it's responding to a drought, the reality of death, the war in Ukraine, or our child's behavior, for tens of thousands of years, we have been searching for answers to assuage our feelings of randomness and helplessness. Perhaps the reason why the question continues to be asked so frequently, as simple as it is, just three letters, we still don't have a satisfying answer to it. Now, it's often assumed that religion can step into this void and provide us clear answers. In John, we hear some religious leaders coming to Jesus and asking him, who sinned that this man was born blind? Or we can read the Psalms and find that refrain of, why is this happening to me, O God? We have the entire book of Job that wrestles with the question that theologians call theodicy, the question of where is God's justice when bad things happen to good people and evil seems to go unpunished. We long for an answer to these questions. And to be clear, some religious people do just that. They give definitive answers, which is a clear sign that what we are encountering is a human-crafted philosophy and not a God-given faith. Any church or religion that has more answers than it does questions has seriously misunderstood God. Two Sundays ago, we heard the story of when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by the devil. Well, for us, the temptation is to say more than we ought when it comes to that question of why. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong in asking hard and tough questions, but we have to be careful about arriving at anything that we would call resolution or closure. When it comes to the question of evil, suffering and tragedy, there is no satisfying or complete answer. And this is by design. Evil does not make sense. And when we try to make evil make sense, we are essentially trying to draw a square circle. Sure, you can put pen to paper, but we only fool ourselves if we think we've ever done it. Solving the supposed problem of evil is no different. Evil is an absurdity, which means it cannot be solved by reason, philosophy, or even theology. 
And we get into so much trouble when we forge ahead anyway and try to rationalize the irrational. So, for example, when we find comfort in knowing that the person who died of COVID was also unvaccinated, then that theoretical connection between their death and their education or their politics or their intelligence, it doesn't do anything other than create a gap between us and them. And that distance is the opposite of the way of love that Jesus has given us to walk. When we use unbiblical and false thinking, like everything happens for a reason, well, then we absolve ourselves from the need to get involved. In Matthew 25, when Jesus famously says that we should care for the hungry, the naked, the sick, or the imprisoned, he does not tell us first to evaluate their lives and decide whether or not they've ended up in that situation because of their poor choices. But when we create an explanation for why they are in poverty or why they are suffering, then we can much more easily say, well, they made their bed and they'll have to sleep in it. If we fall back on God must have a reason for doing this, then it gives us fraudulent license to do nothing and say, well, who am I to mess with God's plan for their lives? Seeking a reason for evil and pain is also problematic because it directs us away from God and towards idolatry. With knowledge comes power. And if we fool ourselves into thinking that we can understand or explain evil, then we might actually think that we are in control of it. When wildfires rage in the West, there's no controlling them, just managing. And that is the best that we can do with evil. We can manage its effects, but we cannot control it. Deluding ourselves with insufficient answers makes us think that we are in control when we most certainly are not. And when we think that we are in control, we tend to distance ourselves from God, thinking that God isn't necessary. That's exactly what happened in Genesis 3. Our ancestors in faith sought that which was not theirs to have, knowledge of good and evil. Quite literally, in eating of that tree, they bit off more than they could chew. Our seeking to make sense out of that which makes no sense is to commit that very same sin over and over again. Perhaps this is why the concluding message to the book of Job is essentially, mind your own business. We get into a lot of trouble when we try to normalize things like racism, sexism, war, abuse, and greed, things that should never be accepted as normal. The only answer, if we can even call it that, to suffering is solidarity. The response to suffering is to be with those who are suffering. Perhaps we can alleviate that suffering by offering medicine, food, resources, or advocacy but maybe all we can do is just to share with them in their suffering, to shed a tear with them, to hold their hand, not offering advice or solutions, but simply saying this is hard and you are not alone. That's exactly what Jesus does 
fulfilling the promise of the prophets to be Emmanuel, God with us. Now, yes, of course, Jesus does resolve the final consequences of sin and death, but he does not do it with an explanation or a lecture or a mindfulness practice, but through a love that defies all explanation, which was seen most fully on the hardwood of the cross. There's a lovely prayer from our prayer book for the evening that prays, stir up in us the flames of that love, which burned in the heart of your son as he bore his passion, and let it burn in us to eternal life. That is the response to suffering, love. Now, love does not necessarily make the suffering go away. It does not give us an answer that will satisfy our desire for clear cause and effect, nor does it leave us feeling as if we are in control. But as one mystic has put it, the extreme greatness of Christianity lies in the fact that it does not seek a supernatural remedy for suffering, but a supernatural use of it. And this sort of non-answer is exactly what we find Jesus pointing us towards in this morning's text from Luke. Now, just before this passage, Jesus said, you hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? In other words, why do we miss what is so obvious? Now, after he says that, the local news comes up. Hey, did you hear about those Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices? Now, Galileans, and remember, Jesus is from the Galilee region, were seen as lesser than the Jerusalem Jews. It's no different than our city versus county debates. Same dynamics, just 2,000 years ago. Pilate was a fairly brutal ruler, and he had some Galileans killed, presumably during the Passover rituals, so that their blood ran in the streets, as did the blood of the sacrificed lambs. Now, this is a trap. Either Jesus will condemn Pilate's actions and open himself to charges of speaking poorly of the government, or Jesus will say something like, well, they had it coming and then be accused of partisanship and being insensitive to human suffering. But Jesus is being that, asked that age-old question, why? Why did these people die like this? And Jesus refuses to answer an absurd question. Instead, he says, unless you repent, you will perish just as they did. That was a question about human evil. And then Jesus takes it a step further. Well, did you all hear about the Tower of Siloam? It fell and killed 18 innocent bystanders. Now, we don't know anything about that historical event, but either due to some bad architectural engineering or some very gusty winds, a tower fell and it crushed some people. This is natural evil suffering that cannot be attributed to a single person. So this is things like hurricanes, pandemics, unfortunate accidents. 
So let's see if Jesus uses one of the worst lines in all of theology to explain this. Let's see if Jesus says that God needed another angel. No. Well, maybe he blames them for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Maybe he'll say this was how God deals with worse than average sinners. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Now that word repent in the Greek of Luke's writing, it means to change your mind, to have a change of heart. The, uh, the Hebrew idea behind this word is physical turning. I was going that way, but then I saw the truth and I went that way. To repent is to be transformed. It is to see things differently, to value things differently, to move in this world differently, to ask different questions. A part of repentance is to stop asking why in order to control, explain, or justify the suffering of others. In Lent, I have mentioned that each Sunday the theme of death is in the readings, and today it's quite obvious. We're all on the path of death. And death, of course, is more than the cessation of our bodily functions. Yes, we all know that our mortal lives will come to an end. But perhaps even more tragically is when we spend 80 or so years without ever having really lived. Because of fear, selfishness, stinginess, and doubt, we end up missing out on the abundance of life that we are given in Christ. Instead of enjoying the gift of grace, we end up just slogging through day after day. And Jesus saves us from both types of death. And through the parable of the fig tree, Jesus speaks about the sort of death that comes when we live a life of fruitlessness. There was a fig tree that for three years had no figs growing on it. According to Leviticus, after three years of fruitlessness, the tree was hopelessly infertile. The landowner comes to the gardener and says, cut it down. It's just taking up resources and not producing a thing. The gardener, though, says, give it some more time. Let me fertilize it, and it may well eventually bear some fruit. The word that Jesus uses for it, let it alone, it's forgive. Somehow this parable is Jesus' response to the questions of suffering and evil. The gardener's response is love and mercy. As Jesus has suggested, those who Pilate had killed and those who had the tower fall on them met the same fate that each and every one of us will. And if that sort of calamity has not yet fallen on us, it's not because we're living right. It's because we've been shown mercy. In various ways, we are all fruitless, not producing the harvest of righteousness. And yet God spares us and gives us more time, gives us nourishment to fertilize us so that we can produce the fruits of faith. When we are dead, both literally and spiritually, the gardener shows us mercy. Now this parable, perhaps frustratingly for those of us who like answers, is unfinished. What happens? Does that tree ever produce a fig? The parable is not finished here because it takes the rest of the gospel to finish it. 
Jesus takes on the fruitlessness of sin and death. And indeed, Jesus is cut down. And by the time we get to Easter, we will be ready to celebrate those sweet fruits of his resurrection, which by grace are ours as well. When there is suffering, evil, death, and fruitlessness, Jesus' response is to say, the story's not over yet. There's a play about St. Thomas More. He was a political prisoner in England, and his daughter came to visit him when he was jailed in the Tower of London. In this play, More says, if we lived in a state where virtue were profitable, common sense would make us saintly. But since we see that anger, pride, and stupidity commonly profit beyond charity, modesty, and justice, we must stand fast. And his daughter pleads with him to change his stance and recant so that he can go free, saying, but in reason, Father, haven't you done as much as God can reasonably ask? To which Moore responds, well, in the end, it's not a matter of reason. It's a matter of love. This is why at the heart of our faith is the cross. As St. Paul called it, a stumbling block to those who want logic and foolishness to those who want to pursue righteousness on their own. Evil makes no sense. In fact, it leads to the senselessness of the world we see all around us. But we give thanks to God that in Jesus we receive the mercy and grace of God. But that only makes sense if love is the true grain of the universe. In whatever suffering you are facing, whenever you encounter evil, whenever your soul cries out, why? Know that you are not alone. The love of God is with you. When we see suffering and pain in our world being rooted and grounded in this love, we can avoid the temptation to explain, to condemn, to speculate. But rather we can follow Jesus in his way of love by joining the love of God that is already with those who are suffering, already working to make all things new. There's really not an answer to evil. And that is good news, that evil cannot be made to make any sense. But there is a response to suffering, and we see it on the cross. It is the love of God that makes all things well.